from the wilderness of Kodiak Island, Alaska, this is Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier with your host, Robin Bearfield. In a land full of peril and vicious animals, humans are the most dangerous predators of all. Unfortunately, children do kill their fathers and mothers. It occurs. It's rare, but it occurs. Welcome to Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Robin Bearfield, and I'm broadcasting from the heart of the Kodiak National Wildlife Refuge on Kodiak Island in Alaska. Most teenagers fight with their parents, and during a heated argument, some kids might even scream, I hate you, at their mother or father. But such disagreements signal normal growing pains. Few teens order a hit on a parent, simply because the child feels the parent is too strict. Matricide, the killing of one's mother, is uncommon, and matricide by a girl under the age of 18 is extremely rare. Of the few cases in recent history where a girl under the age of 18 killed her mother, the offender either had been abused by her mother or the killer exhibited extremely antisocial behavior. Despite what she told her friends, Rochelle Waterman was neither abused nor antisocial. She appeared to be a normal, high-achieving junior in high school. Rochelle sang in the school choir and played on the volleyball team. Residents of Craig, Alaska adored Rochelle's mother, Lori, who was active in her church, worked as a teacher's aide, and was always the first to volunteer to help with any community function. Rochelle's father, Carl Doc Waterman, was a well-liked, successful real estate agent in Craig. Not only was Lori Waterman an unlikely murder victim, but Craig, Alaska, seems like the last place such a crime would occur. Craig, with a population of 1,500 residents, is the largest town on Prince of Wales Island in southeastern Alaska. Craig is a small, close-knit community in an idyllic setting. But like every other town on the planet, Craig is not immune to violent crime. In 1982, the worst mass murder in recent history in Alaska occurred on the F.V. Investor, a 58-foot commercial fishing boat tied to the dock in Craig. The massacre still haunts the residents of Craig because no one was ever convicted of the crime. And now again, in 2004, a second horrible murder impacted this small town. On Sunday, November 14, 2004, Alaska State Trooper Bob Klaus received a call from a deer hunter who had been hunting in a remote area of Prince of Wales Island. The hunter said he noticed smoke on the side of a cliff, and since he knew there were no homes or cabins in the area, he investigated the cause of the smoke and found a van that apparently had tumbled off the road and was pinned against a log. The van was partially burned, and when the hunter peered through a broken window, he saw a skull resting beside a blackened human torso on the back seat of the van. 
The body was so badly burned, he couldn't tell if it was a man, woman, or child. When Trooper Klaus reached the van, he knew this was a murder scene. How else could you explain a charred corpse on the back seat of a vehicle? He immediately called his supervising lieutenant in Ketchikan and requested help with the investigation of a likely homicide. He needed a crime scene technician, a fire investigator, and a homicide investigator. These specialists would arrive the following morning, so in the meantime, Klaus and a wildlife trooper guarded the crime scene, and Klaus called the police in Craig and asked them to notify him if anyone on the island was reported missing. At 9.45 p.m., the Craig Police Department dispatcher called Klaus to inform him real estate broker Doc Waterman had just reported his 40-year-old wife Lori and her purple minivan missing. Lori wasn't home when Doc returned at 3.30 p.m. from a weekend business trip to Juneau, and his concern deepened with every passing hour Lori did not return. When she still wasn't home by night, he decided to call the police. The news stunned Klaus. Was Lori Waterman the burned corpse in the van? The Waterman and Klaus families were friends, and Waterman's daughter, Rochelle, and her older brother, Jeffrey, had attended elementary school with Klaus's two daughters. Klaus's wife was a school teacher in Craig. Lori Waterman worked as a teacher's aide. And Doc Waterman was the president of the school board. Klaus called Doc Waterman, and Doc explained he had been in Juneau for the weekend at a Girl Scout council meeting, and Rochelle had spent the weekend in Anchorage at a volleyball tournament. Since Jeffrey was away at college, Lori had spent the weekend alone at their house. Doc said he tried to call his wife several times on Sunday, but she never answered the phone. He and Rochelle both returned to Craig at nearly the same time, and when they arrived home, Lori and her van were missing from their home. Since Doc didn't see Lori's purse where she usually kept it, he assumed she must be running errands and would be home soon. The previous night, Lori had volunteered to help with the Chamber of Commerce dinner, and Doc thought she now might be assisting with the cleanup from the event. In the kitchen of their house, Doc found an empty wine bottle on the counter. And since Lori rarely ever drank alcohol, he found the presence of the wine bottle curious. In the master bedroom, Doc noticed the bed was unmade, and Lori always made the bed first thing in the morning. In the bathroom, he found his wife's wedding ring set, and he said while she often took off her rings before going to bed, she always wore them when she left the house. Still, Doc wasn't too worried about his wife, and he believed when she returned home, she would be able to explain her unusual behavior. As the hours passed and she didn't return, though, his concern turned to fear and dread. Doc called friends and neighbors to ask about Lori, and they told him they had seen Lori on Saturday night at the Chamber of Commerce dinner, but no one remembered seeing her after she left the event. Trooper Klaus knew the corpse in the burned-out van must be Lori Waterman. There weren't many minivans on Prince of Wales Island, and no one else had been reported missing. But since neither the remains nor the van had been officially identified, Klaus refrained from telling Doc Waterman about the wreckage. As Klaus guarded the van while he waited for the other investigators to arrive, he wondered 
Who would want to kill sweet Lori Waterman? In most investigations, the husband is the first suspect, but Doc Waterman had been 220 miles away in Juneau for the weekend. Lori's children were also both gone that weekend. Her son Jeffrey attended college in Washington State, and her daughter Rochelle had been at a volleyball tournament in Anchorage over the weekend. Who on their sparsely populated island would want to kill Lori Waterman? Monday morning homicide investigator Sergeant Randy McFerron, a deputy fire marshal, and a crime scene tech arrived at the scene of the homicide. The fire marshal determined the blaze started in the back seat of the van, and most of the flames stayed inside the van. The thorax, the pelvic girdle, the leg bones above the knees, and the large arm bones were all that remained of the body. The skull was also intact, but very brittle, due to the high temperature of the fire, followed by rapid cooling from the near-freezing ambient temperature. Investigators found several teeth in the ashes of the van. The fire marshal noted the scent of gasoline in the rock and soil samples he collected to be analyzed. Sergeant McFerron found the VIN, the vehicle identification number, tag in the wreckage. Klaus called the DMV and confirmed the van was registered to Carl and Lori Waterman. Chief C. with the Craig Police Department volunteered to deliver the bad news to Doc Waterman. On the morning of Monday, November 15th, Rochelle Waterman went to school rather than stay home and worry about her missing mother. Rochelle was a good student and a talented singer and athlete. She was popular with her peers, but over the past year she had changed. She began wearing all black clothes and polished her nails black. She still spent time with her girlfriends at school, but over the past summer she'd taken a job at a computer store and started hanging out with a new circle of friends, including two men in their 20s. These friends shared an interest in video games and the fantasy role-playing game Dungeons & Dragons. Even after the computer store went out of business, Rochelle continued to spend time with the Dungeons & Dragons crowd. Rochelle's behavior at school on Monday morning seemed understandably odd for a teenage girl whose mother was missing. Students reported that Rochelle remained quiet and sullen most of the day, but then she casually asked one of her friends if she had seen her mother. All the kids had heard about the burned-out van and knew the corpse found in the back was probably Rochelle's mother. Rochelle told at least one friend she feared her mother had died in a drunk driving accident, citing as evidence the empty wine bottle Rochelle and her father found when they returned home on Sunday. When several friends gave her a sympathy card for the loss of her mother, Rochelle lost control. The secretary of the high school called Don Pierce, a friend and neighbor of the Watermans and a special education teacher. Don came to the office and told Rochelle he wanted to take her home, but Rochelle said she couldn't leave with him because her friend Jason Arant was coming to the school to be with her. 
Pierce knew Jason Arant was one of Rochelle's friends from the computer store. Jason was a heavy-set man in his mid-twenties who worked as a janitor at the school in Klawak, another town on the island. Jason had a reputation as a washout who still lived with his parents and spent his time playing video games. And Pierce knew Lori Waterman was not happy when Rochelle started spending time with Jason. When Jason arrived at the school, he told Pierce he would take care of Rochelle. But Pierce said Police Chief C wanted to talk to Rochelle and her father at home, and he would drive her to her house. As Pierce and Rochelle walked out of the school, Jason ran after them, yelling at Pierce, but Pierce ignored him. Jason followed Pierce and Rochelle to the Waterman home and tried to follow Rochelle into the house. But when Chief C arrived, he told Jason to leave, and Jason finally complied. Chief C wasted no time breaking the news to Doc and Rochelle, telling them the burned-out vehicle was Lori's van. He explained they had not identified the remains yet, but he thought Lori was probably dead. Experts would compare Lori's dental records to the teeth found in the van to confirm the identification. Doc Waterman listened calmly to what Chief C. said and then asked the police chief to follow him upstairs. Doc pointed out blood on the bedsheets in the master bedroom and showed C. the items he'd found tangled in the blankets, including what looked to C like the tip of a finger of a rubber glove and a five-inch long fiber from a rope. Chief C. suddenly realized the house was a crime scene, and he told Doc and Rochelle they would have to temporarily move out of the house until crime scene techs could comb the premises. Doc and Rochelle packed some clothes and went to stay next door at the home of Don and Lorraine Pierce. Investigators believed Lori Waterman was abducted from her home sometime after 10 p.m. Saturday night when she left the Chamber of Commerce dinner and before early Sunday morning when Doc tried to phone her at home. The blood on the sheets, the rubber glove tip, and the piece of rope all suggested an intruder had entered the house in the middle of the night when Lori was asleep. The intruder either murdered Lori in the house or abducted her and killed her later. Rochelle told police she last spoke to her mother on the telephone around 4 p.m. on Saturday. She said she and her mother had a good conversation, and her mother seemed happy. Rochelle admitted she sometimes argued with her mother and said her mom did not like her hanging around with the much older Jason Arant. A forensic odontologist in Anchorage compared the jaw and teeth found in the van to dental x-rays of Lori Waterman's teeth and conclusively identified the corpse as Lori Waterman. Let me take a short break from the story. The puzzle game Best Fiends is a sponsor for this podcast, and I would like to thank them and tell you a little about Best Fiends. I love this game. It is bright with adorable insect characters. Upon first glance, you might think it's a children's game, but while it is appropriate for any age, Best Fiends is made for adults. 
and as you progress, the puzzles become more challenging, requiring you to use strategy in order to solve each level. Luckily, my husband plays Best Fiends, too, so when I scream, Ugh! I'm out of moves and I only had one slug left, he understands and sympathizes. I recently flew out to our lodge on a windy day, and five minutes into the bumpy floatplane trip, I wished I'd left my telephone in my pocket so I could play Best Fiends to take my mind off the turbulence while we soared over the mountains of Kodiak Island. One of the things I appreciate about this game is you download it and play it offline so you can play it on a plane, even a float plane over the wilderness of Alaska. I am currently on level 141 of Best Fiends, and I do my best to help my little insect pals battle slugs. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Trooper Bob Klaus knew the Waterman family well, and he knew Lori had been unhappy when Rochelle began dating Jason Arant. During the summer, Rochelle hung out with Jason at the computer store where she worked. Jason was best friends with her boss, Brian Riddell, and Jason spent much of his time at the computer store playing video games. From the beginning of the investigation, Klaus suspected Arant had something to do with the murder of Lori Waterman. Rochelle began dating Jason during the summer, but once school started, they were rarely seen together, and many around town assumed Rochelle had come to her senses and had broken up with the older man. Both Jason and his friend Brian Riddell were big men. At the time of Lori Waterman's murder, Brian stood six foot five inches tall and weighed 280 pounds, and Jason also weighed well over 200 pounds. When Trooper Klaus began to suspect Jason might be involved in Lori's murder, he wondered if Jason's buddy Brian also had participated in the crime. The two big men easily could have subdued and abducted the much smaller Lori Waterman. Troopers questioned Jason Arant and Brian Riddell. Jason told them he and Rochelle had dated for a while, but they broke up because Rochelle's parents were not happy about their relationship. Jason and Brian both claimed they were together at Brian's house drinking all night on Saturday, November 13th, when someone abducted and murdered Lori Waterman. At 7.30 p.m. on November 17th, Sergeant Randy McFearon and Troopers Bob Klaus and Dane Gilmore arrived at the Waterman house to again interview Doc and Rochelle. McFearon told Doc he would like for Dane to stay at the house to interview Doc, while he and Klaus took Rochelle to the police station for an interview. Doc readily gave McFearon permission to talk to Rochelle without him present, and Rochelle went willingly with the troopers to the police station. Since Rochelle was 16 years old, the troopers did not technically need her father's permission to interview her, but McFearon hoped that by asking her father for consent, 
he would ease Doc's mind and keep him from calling a lawyer to accompany Rochelle to the station. Once the officers reached police headquarters, they took Rochelle to an interrogation room and videotaped her interview. McFerron began by asking Rochelle about her mom, and the easy questions seemed to relax Rochelle. McFerron asked Rochelle about her relationship with Jason Arant, but she said they were only friends. She said her mother did not like her hanging out with Jason, and she agreed with her mother and began spending less time with him. McFerron suspected Rochelle was being less than truthful with him about her relationships with her mother and Jason, but he moved on to another topic. A while later, McFerron reminded Rochelle of her rights and said she could end the interview at any point. He then told Rochelle he thought Jason Arant might be responsible for her mother's death, and he again asked Rochelle about her relationship with Jason and told her he needed to know the details of their relationship. They asked her if she'd ever had sex with Jason Arant or Brian Riddell. She said she had done nothing more than kiss Jason on the cheek. McFerrin lied to Rochelle and told her both Jason and Brian claimed they'd had sex with her. Rochelle initially denied the claims, but as the questioning grew more intense, she finally admitted to having sex with Jason several times during the summer, and once with Brian Riddell the previous spring. McFerron then asked Rochelle if she ever said anything to Jason or Brian about fights she'd had with her mother. She said she might have mentioned being mad at her mother a few times, and she told Jason her mother sometimes hit her. But she claimed she never told Jason or Brian anything to make them want to kill her mother, and she said she did not believe either man would want to harm her mom. As McFerron and Klaus pressed her, Rochelle finally admitted she and her mother frequently argued about her clothes, her choice in boyfriends, and her recent interest in Wicca, a religion some believed to be related to witchcraft. Rochelle said her mother hit her legs with a baseball bat and once tried to push Rochelle down the stairs. Rochelle also claimed her mother threatened her with a knife. Rochelle confessed she had reported these incidents to Jason Arant and Brian Riddell. McFerron and Klaus believed Rochelle was trying to portray herself as the innocent victim of an abusive mother. Rochelle seemed to suggest that if Arant and Riddell killed her mother to protect Rochelle from more beatings, the murder was their idea, and she had nothing to do with it. The troopers did not believe in Rochelle's innocence. They thought she'd use sex to manipulate the older men into killing her mother for her. The troopers interviewed Rochelle's other friends, including past boyfriends. Some said Rochelle also told them her mother abused her, but none believed Rochelle's claims and said Rochelle was prone to exaggeration. Doc Waterman flatly denied Lori had abused Rochelle. He said they sometimes argued, but Lori never got physical. The murder of Lori Waterman made national news when reporters discovered Rochelle had been blogging about her life for the past two years. 
In 2004, blogging was in its infancy. And although teenagers around the world embraced the idea of writing an online journal to share their thoughts, habits, and lives with total strangers, most parents remained unaware of what their children did on their computers. The Waterman case and Rochelle's blog alerted the media, and this small-town murder case spawned waves which rippled far beyond the shores of Prince of Wales Island. Rochelle Waterman loved to blog and didn't censor her feelings about her family or her town. She titled her blog, My Crappy Life, and referred to Craig as Hell Alaska. She candidly discussed sex, used profanity, described arguments with her parents, and her disdain for her community. Her last entry in the blog on Wednesday, November 18, 2004, shocked not only Craig, Alaska, but the entire country, and caused many residents in Craig to suspect Rochelle had ordered her mother's murder. Rochelle wrote, Just to let everyone know, my mother was murdered. I won't have computer access until the weekend or so because the police took my computer to go through the hard drive. I thank everyone for their thoughts and emails. I hope to talk to you when I get my computer back. 5,000 people commented on Rochelle's post, and people in Craig were stunned when the blog came to their attention. Rochelle casually mentioned her mother's murder as the reason why she would not have access to her computer for the next few days. Sergeant McFerron soon cracked Jason Arant. In his third interview, Jason said his friend Brian Rodell killed Lori Waterman. But Jason insisted he knew nothing about the murder until it was over. Jason said Rochelle was not involved in the murder of her mother. When McFerron and Klaus interviewed Jason again later the same night, he admitted he was part of the murder plot. Rochelle told Jason her mother was abusing her, and Rochelle also mentioned she and her dad would be out of town for the weekend. Jason said he was in love with Rochelle and couldn't bear to think of her enduring more abuse. He said the opportunity presented itself, and he asked his friend Brian to murder Lori Waterman. Brian agreed to do the murder because he did not think Jason had what it took to kill another human being. When investigators arrested Brian Riddell, he told McFerrin and Klaus he planned to plead guilty, and he was willing to make a full statement on video, explaining in detail how he kidnapped and killed Lori Waterman. Brian said he broke into the Waterman's garage at 12.30 a.m., on Sunday, November 14th. He entered the house and climbed the stairs to the top level, where he saw Lori asleep in her master bedroom. He hovered outside her bedroom until 3 a.m. and then decided to act. He approached the bed, put a cloth over Lori's mouth, and pinned her to the bed. He duct-taped the cloth to her mouth and made Lori change from her nightgown into street clothes. Riddell said his original plan was to make Lori's death look like a drunk driving accident, so he took her downstairs, opened a bottle of wine, and told her to drink the entire bottle. Lori meekly complied. He then took the keys to Lori's minivan from her purse and told her to lie on the back seat of the van. 
He bound her legs and feet so she couldn't move and then drove for an hour to a secluded area of the island. He took Lori out of the van and set her down on the gravel on her knees. He hoped to break her neck, put her back in the van, and set the van over the edge of the cliff, making it look as if she broke her neck in the crash. He said he tried to break her neck with his bare hands, but although he heard a crack, she was still breathing. Next, he pummeled her neck with a flashlight, but still she did not die. So he covered her mouth with a cloth and pinched her nose until she stopped breathing. Brian said during the assault, Lori never resisted or screamed. She just kept repeating the words, Can I ask you a question? Brian asked her what the question was, but she just repeated, Can I ask you a question? Once she was dead, Brian put Lori back in the vehicle and drove the minivan to the edge of a cliff, doused Lori in the vehicle with gasoline, and set it on fire. The minivan slid partially down the embankment. Brian said Jason was not with him until at the very end when he set the van on fire. He claimed Jason took no part in the murder and said Rochelle was unaware of the murder plan. McFerron and Klaus did not believe Brian Riddell when he said Jason and Rochelle were not involved in the murder. They thought Brian was trying to protect his friends. McFerron and Klaus interviewed Jason again and convinced him Rochelle had lied to him about being abused. McFerron told Jason he believed Rochelle asked him to kill her mother, and he enlisted Brian Riddell's help. Jason finally caved and admitted Rochelle told him she wanted her mother dead. He said she called him before she left for Anchorage to go to the volleyball tournament and asked Jason if he and Brian were all set. She called Jason again when she arrived home and found her mother missing, and he said he told her it was done. Jason told McFerron and Klaus that he and Brian tried to kill Lori one other time. Their plan then had been to gun down Lori after she dropped off Rochelle for volleyball practice. But when Brian experienced problems with his gun, they were forced to abort the plan. After the plan failed, Jason said he emailed Rochelle and told her they had to cancel the hunting trip, but promised they would try again. Jason confessed he lied when he claimed he met up with Brian after Lori was dead. He now said he joined Brian when Lori was still bound in the back of the van. Jason repeated Brian's sickening story of Lori's murder. And Jason said at one point he told Lori she would never hurt Rochelle again. Investigators knew the case against Rochelle Waterman was weak, so they decided to interview her one more time. Rochelle willingly accompanied McFerron and Sergeant Habib to the police station. McFerron read Rochelle her Miranda rights and asked Rochelle if she understood her rights and knew she could have her father present for the questioning. Rochelle said she wanted to talk to the investigators without her father or lawyer present. McFerron told Rochelle both Jason and Brian admitted to killing her mother, and he said both men implicated her in the plot. This last statement was not true. 
Jason said Rochelle had asked him to kill her mother, but Brian Riddell steadfastly maintained Rochelle had nothing to do with the plan. McFerron and Habib went at Rochelle hard for two and one-half hours, and finally she admitted she'd asked the two men to kill her mother, but she said they told her nothing about the plot. She suspected the murder would happen when she was at the state volleyball tournament and her father was in Juneau, but neither Jason nor Brian shared any details of their plan with her. Investigators arrested Rochelle Waterman, and her bail was set at $150,000. Since her father could not raise the money, Rochelle stayed in prison until her trial. Jason Arant and Brian Riddell also remained incarcerated. On Wednesday, June 8, 2005, Brian Riddell pleaded guilty to first-degree murder. He was sentenced to a maximum of 99 years in prison, but with time off for good behavior, he could be released in 33 years. Jason also pleaded guilty to first-degree murder, but since he did not commit the actual murder of Lori Waterman, his sentence was capped at 50 years, making him eligible for parole in 16 years. Due to the notoriety of the Lori Waterman case, the judge decided a fair trial for Rochelle could not be held in either Craig or nearby Ketchikan, and the trial was moved to Juneau. Jury selection began on Monday, January 23, 2006. Both Brian Riddell and Jason Arant testified at Rochelle's trial. Brian stated Jason asked him to kill Lori. And while Brian acknowledged Rochelle often complained about her mother abusing her, he stated she never asked him to kill her mother. Jason testified Rochelle told him she wanted her mother dead, and he said the two of them talked about various murder plots. He said when she knew she would be in Anchorage and her father would be in Juneau for the weekend, she called Jason and told him it would be a good weekend to carry out the plan. When Rochelle called Jason after she returned home from Anchorage and found her mother and the minivan missing, Jason said Rochelle was disappointed to hear they destroyed the minivan, because now she would not be able to inherit it. Jason said he asked Rochelle to wipe down the hand railing on the stairs and the doorknobs in her house in case Brian missed anything, and Rochelle agreed to do it. Rochelle's defense attorney hammered McFerron for his tough interrogation of a 16-year-old girl. And then a psychologist hired by the defense testified Rochelle was immature for her age and did not fully understand her Miranda rights. The psychologist said McFerron intimidated Rochelle, and she was afraid to ask for her father. This characterization of Rochelle as a naive child did not match the smart-mouthed, intelligent, self-assured young woman McFerron remembered questioning. Rochelle's attorney portrayed her as a normal teenager who complained to her friends about her mom. In his closing statement, her attorney stated Rochelle loved her mother and did not want her dead. He maintained the real villain was Jason Arant. He said Jason was angry because Lori Waterman did not want her daughter to date him. So Jason convinced his friend Brian to murder Lori. Rochelle Waterman chose not to testify. On Tuesday, February 14, 2006, the jury in the Rochelle Waterman case sent a note to the judge saying they could not reach a unanimous verdict. 
and the judge was forced to declare a mistrial. Ten jurors believed Rochelle was not guilty, while two believed she was guilty. Rochelle was released on reduced bail. On January 24, 2011, Rochelle Waterman was retried for the murder of her mother. In the intervening years, she had attended college in Florida, as far away from Craig, the town she once dubbed Hell, Alaska, as she could get. The second trial took place in Anchorage. This time, the jury returned a unanimous verdict. Rochelle was acquitted of murder, but found guilty of criminally negligent homicide. The jury determined Rochelle was so negligent and had deviated so far from what a reasonable person would have done, she caused her mother's murder. Rochelle was sentenced to three years in prison and is now a free woman. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to support it, I invite you to join the Last Frontier Club. Club members can unlock extra episodes, follow news on current murder investigations or court cases in Alaska, receive deals on murder and mystery in the Last Frontier merchandise, and more. To learn about the Last Frontier Club, please check the show notes for the link. I will be back soon with the next episode of Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. Thank you.